Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank all of you who contributed to this show and to this station during our recent fund drive. And we're glad now to be back to our regular scheduled programming. As Russia doubles down on its invasion of the Ukraine and with civilian casualties mounting, Ukrainian President Zelensky will address the U.S. Congress on Wednesday. Last week, he addressed the British Parliament. Thus far, his appeal for a no-fly zone has been rejected by the United States, who argue that it would drag the U.S. into war with Russia, a war that has the potential of escalating escalating to a nuclear confrontation. Meanwhile, the world is witnessing the horrors of war live on TV, including its impact on civilian populations. According to the United Nations, there have been 600 and 36 civilian casualties and 1,125 injured in the Ukraine. As the war drags on, more humanitarian corridors have opened, most recently in a province in northeastern Ukraine, close to the Russian border. Over 2 million Ukrainians have fled. Most are in neighboring Poland, where the welcome mat has been laid out for them. There are reports, however, that black and other refugees of color fleeing the Ukraine are having a difficult time getting out of Ukraine and are being denied entrance to Poland or being treated in a racist manner on the one hand by Ukrainian police and on the other hand by Polish guards. In some instances, they have been attacked by neo-Nazi gangs in Poland. Meanwhile, there has been no welcome mat in Europe for refugees fleeing the war in Syria. The largely Muslim refugees trying to gain entry to Poland have been denied entry with many forced to take refuge in dense forests where they sleep on frozen ground. At least 19 have frozen to death, this according to the New York Times. Let us go to a clip now from NBC on what is happening with some of those refugees of color. They would consider white people first, white people first, Indian people, Arabic people, before black people. As long as you are black, no one likes you. I remember they punched a certain black guy, a policeman in Ukraine, punched a certain black guy for nothing. He was shocked for nothing. Yes, so like I said earlier on, they consider white people before considering black people. Yes. And after that, we, we, we went to the, to the train station and they will, they will not let us in. And when, when they did let us in, they, they were like, you have to give us money because this is, this, is not, this is not free for you. Because you are foreign, this is not free for you. You have to pay for it. Maybe it's, it's a war. Maybe people start feeling stressed. They want their people to get first. Of course, everyone wants their, their people to be safe. So they had to express that in, in a way. So I understand that, but at the same time, you should at least yeah, say it in a nice way. In uh, Ukraine, there is some some kind of these battles. There, there are uh, so many people there, and the police uh, don't let. Uh, they do like a kind of racism against foreigners. Uh, they let Ukrainian people cross first, and then they let us cross. 
the U.S. Congress has approved a $782.5 billion defense package, $42 billion above last year. It included $14 billion for the Ukraine. The U.S. and European countries are sending weapons to the Ukraine, including Javelin anti-tank missiles via Poland and Romania. And the United Nations has approved $40 million to assist the Ukraine. But meanwhile, anti-war campaigners have come under criticism and are being called dupes of Russian propaganda by some in mainstream media. Today, we dig deeper into the crisis. What are the, his, uh, the historic roles? Why would a no-fly zone lead to widening the war? What has been the role of NATO and the U.S.? Let us hear a clip from Claire Daly, a member of the Irish Parliament, uh, calling out what she sees as a double standard when it comes to the impact on civilians on Afghanistan and Ukraine. Actually, we'll play that clip later in the show. Our guests are William Hartung, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and historian and author Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Russian forces escalated their bombardment of the Ukrainian capital, edging closer to the heart of Kyiv. Before dawn, a projectile slammed into a 15-story apartment building, killing at least one person. The mayor of Kyiv declared a 35-hour curfew and urged men who had evacuated their families to return to fight to defend the capital. As of today, the 15th of March, 2000 hours martial law, it's not allowed to move around the city without special permission until 7 a.m. on the 17th of March. I'm asking everyone, all the men who have not returned yet, please come back. We need to defend our city and our future. After days of relentless Russian shelling of encircled Mariupol, 150 cars carrying hundreds of civilians managed to escape the besieged city, but hundreds of thousands remained trapped without heat, food, or clean water as Russia renewed its offensive on Mariupol. Ukrainian negotiators were set to meet their Russian counterparts again today after a brief pause. Ukraine's president described the previous round as good without offering details. A spokesman for Russian President Vladimir Putin later described negotiations as difficult. The leaders of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia are traveling to Ukraine's capital on a mission to meet with the country's president and prime minister. They described their visit into the war zone as a mission by the European Union to support Ukraine. EU officials said the Central European leaders had taken the trip independently despite security risks. William Denislow reports from Poland. In a series of tweets, the Czech Prime Minister, Petr Fiala, says the trip's aim is to express the European Union's unequivocal support for Ukraine and its freedom. The delegation will visit with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky and representatives of the European Council. 
Piala says members of the international community, including the United Nations, have been informed. Ukraine has called for NATO members to supply more weapons, tighten sanctions on Russia and implement a no-fly zone. William Denzelow. Poland, near the Ukrainian border. An editor for Russian state TV news interrupted the nightly news broadcast as she appeared behind the broadcaster with a big sign reading, quote, no war, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they are lying to you here. The editor's voice can be heard in the background. The news program then cut to a recorded report. Editor Marina Ovsianikova was believed to have been arrested. Anticipating her arrest, the editor left behind a recorded video in which he called the war a crime and Russia the aggressor. I am ashamed I allowed lies to be told on TV screens. I am ashamed I allowed Russian people to be fooled. We were silent in 2014 when it all started. We did not go out to protest when the Kremlin poisoned Navalny. We simply watched this inhumane regime. Now the whole world has turned away from us, and the next 10 generations of our descendants will not wash away the shame of this fratricidal war. We Russians are wise and proud. It is up to us to stop this madness. Come out to protest. Do not be afraid. They cannot put all of us in jail. The editor said her father is Ukrainian and her mother Russian. Just days after Saudi Arabia carried out a mass execution of 81 people, Britain's prime minister is headed to the kingdom seeking new sources of oil and gas to replace Russian imports. The human rights group Reprieve is demanding that Boris Johnson cancel his trip, saying the prime minister is begging for Saudi oil and that we cannot trade oil for blood in our name. British officials are defending the trip. Britain's top court has refused WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange permission to appeal against a decision to extradite him to the U.S. to face espionage charges. The court said it refused because the case didn't raise an arguable point of law. Assange has sought for years to avoid extradition to the U.S. on a series of charges related to WikiLeaks publication of a huge trove of classified documents more than a decade ago. They include evidence of possible U.S. war crimes in Iraq. His supporters and lawyers argue Assange was acting as a journalist and is entitled to First Amendment protections of freedom of speech for publishing the documents that exposed U.S. military wrongdoing in Iraq and Afghanistan. If convicted, Assange's lawyers say he could face up to 175 years in prison. Police say they've arrested a suspected gunman who has been stalking homeless men asleep on the streets of New York City and Washington, D.C. At least two people have been killed and three wounded in less than two weeks. Police announced early today on Twitter that law enforcement arrested the suspect in Washington and he was being interviewed by police. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And today we're going to be focusing on digging a bit deep on what is going on with the Ukraine. That war, the Russian invasion now entering the third week. A delegation of European heads of state are headed to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev to meet with uh, President Zelensky. Uh, this with reports of Russian troops uh, getting closer to that capital city. The heads 
heads of state include uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Poland, and uh, Slovenia. Um, in response, in his public response on March 7th, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky recognized that joining NATO is not an option for the Ukraine. He insisted that the option opinions of people in the Donbass region, now occupied by Russia, should be a critical factor in determining some form of settlement. Um, well, this seems to be a bit of a shift here because that was one of Russia's demands. Uh, and many people are saying that this war was uncalled for. It, it really could have been uh, negotiated. Uh, peace talks between Ukraine and Russia are scheduled to resume. This after the Ukraine says there was a technical pause. And as I said earlier, uh, President Zelensky will deliver a virtual address to the U.S. Congress on Wednesday. And this provides an opportunity to carry forward diplomatic initiatives that have been undertaken by France and Germany with limited Chinese support. However, the U.S. and the U.K. have not been part of these efforts, and no doubt uh, President Zelensky I would be surprised if he doesn't, in his speech tomorrow on Wednesday, call again for a no-fly zone. But let us go to a clip now from ABC News about the no controversy over the no-fly zone. As we've been reporting, Ukrainian President Zelensky has been pleading with the U.S. and his allies to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. The administration giving a firm no to the request. Our chief global affairs anchor, Martha Raddatz, joins us with what's at stake here, Martha. Good morning. Good morning, Robin. This is a very delicate issue for the U.S. The administration certainly wants to prevent the loss of life in Ukraine, and that is at the heart of what a no-fly zone would do, prohibiting Russian warplanes from flying over Ukraine. But it would mean a much deeper and direct military involvement by the U.S. and NATO. NATO would have to enforce that no-fly zone, meaning if a Russian warplane entered that restricted area, NATO and the U.S. would be compelled to take action including the possibility of shooting it down. That would then put our pilots at risk and raise the potential for expanding the war, putting the U.S. and Russia possibly in direct military confrontation. All righty. And I'd now like to welcome our guest, uh, William Hartuck, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His work focuses on the arms industry and the U.S. military budget. He recently wrote the article, Biden is right to rule out a no-fly zone in the Ukraine. He's also recently uh, written the piece, Support Ukraine, but don't implement a no-fly zone that was published in Forbes magazine. Uh, William Hurton, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Okay, so give us a, a lot of uh, controversy. As you say in your article, you've got 27 foreign policy analysts and former government officials, including the former Supreme Alliance 
uh, Allied commander in Europe in an open letter uh, that stated a U.S. enforced no-fly zone to protect humanitarian carters and additional military means for Ukrainian self-defense are desperately needed and needed now. They are strongly pushing for it. And I'll have to say, it seems that many of the reports coming out of uh, mainstream media uh, seem to be pushing in that direction. And will the pressure be too much? Do you think the U.S. will cave on this? And what are the dangers, you think, of a no-fly zone? And and also, um, if you would, explain a bit to our audience exactly what is meant by a no-fly zone, William Martin. Yes. Well, I think part of the problem or issue is a lot of people want to stop the killing in Ukraine. And the understanding of a no-fly zone is just, it's a humanitarian gesture that will keep Russia from bombing civilian areas. But what is not discussed enough is that it's an act of war. Uh, it means shooting down Russian aircraft. It could mean bombing anti-aircraft facilities in Ukraine or even in Russia. It would be a direct war between the U.S., NATO, and Russia. And given that the war between nuclear armed powers, it could rise to the level of a nuclear exchange if things went out of hand. So, you know, a lot of the advocates say, well, we can just protect a humanitarian corridor, not all of Ukraine, uh, we'll be careful, etc. But the bottom line is it's an act of war that raises the risk of direct confrontation. That's why I think uh, we need to step back from it. There's pressure from the public, of course, President Zelensky's called for it, some members of Congress. But overall, I think the Biden system is pretty clear they don't want to do this. Uh, even people like Marco Rubio have said it could spark World War III. So I think the opposition in government to doing this will hold. But the more the horrors of Ukraine are on the TV screens and on social media and people see them, that pressure could grow. So I think it's important to hold the line against this step which would escalate the war. Well, let me ask you this. In, in your article, you, you say that uh, there are some who are for a no-fly zone um, who make the claim that it was done in Iraq, it was done in Bosnia, it was done in Libya. Uh, explain the, the difference here if it's been done before. Well, I think the biggest difference is uh, this would be imposing a no-fly zone on a great power that has much more capable anti-aircraft systems to shoot down U.S. Uh, planes, that has a capable air force, and most importantly, that has nuclear weapons. And so, you know, in, in that sense, it's not really comparable to those other cases. And I think to, to suggest that it is, is, is irresponsible. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I've heard something floating around like, a no-fly zone could be established with Ukrainian military uh, pilots flying U.S. planes. Uh, you know, do, do you think that is something that is seriously under consideration? And 
would how would this be seen? Would that be seen also as an act of war? Because um, Russia, Putin is also saying now that the armaments, including these uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles that are coming through Poland and Romania, uh, you know, in and of itself is an act of war, although he hasn't Russia hasn't really acted on that as of yet. But this idea of Ukrainian pilots who right now are not trained to fly those, uh, you know, those planes, but they're saying, well, with some training, they could be sent to get some training and then uh, do the flying. What do you think of that? Well, I th- yeah, I think the training would take a considerable amount of time. So even if they could carry it off, it wouldn't have an immediate effect on the conflict. And I think it's still uh, risky in terms of escalation. And I, it's not a very practical idea, so I don't see it gaining a particular traction. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let us uh, then talk a, a bit too, which is uh, very much an area of your expertise, the budget, um, the U.S. military budget, because apparently um, what Congress passed was much more than what even the Biden administration had asked for. And there are some that are saying, well, basically, it's like a a Republican uh, budget. Now, uh, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people would obviously support um, money going to assist Ukraine, particularly for humanitarian reasons. But one, uh, you know, one has to wonder how much that is going f- for military as opposed to some kind of humanitarian aid. Tell us a bit about this uh, military budget, because there are a lot of us, uh, for example, in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, a lot of um, anti-poverty campaigners that are saying, well, wait a minute, suddenly a lot of money can be found for war and for these operations. But when it comes to providing a child tax credit, when it comes to protecting Medicaid and other social programs in the United States, um, one is told the money isn't there and that there's scarcity. Um, Your thoughts on the military budget? Well, I think one thing is the budget was going up dramatically even before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, we were on a course to spend $7.3 trillion or more uh, over the next decade on the military, which is about four times the cost of the president's Build Back Better plan, which was held up in Congress on the argument that we couldn't afford it. So this process was already underway, and Congress added $25 billion in uh, the, the most recently passed budget beyond what the Pentagon even asked for. And unfortunately, although a lot of Republicans pushed for it. A lot of Democrats signed off on it as well. And at that time, the rationale put forward was China and the challenge from China. But in fact, a lot of it had to do with adding weapon systems that weren't needed, built in districts and states with key members, uh, reinforced by campaign contributions from the weapons industry. So uh, a lot of that addition was pork barrel politics and the workings of the military industrial complex without any kind of careful consideration of what's needed to defend the country, which could be done for much less than is being spent now. Now with Ukraine, there was an emergency bill of about 13 to $14 billion, around half of which would be for military purposes, either uh, deploying troops to Eastern Europe or sending more weapons to Ukraine. 
and my fear is that that's just the beginning, uh, that there's going to be a call to push the Pentagon budget even higher uh, based on Russia's action in Ukraine, even if a lot of that money is not even going to be used to do anything with security in Europe. So it's, it's an opportunity that will be seized on, you know, the fear caused by this war uh, to push an agenda that's favorable to the weapons industry. Right. Okay. So uh, just going back to the, um, you know, the no-fly zone and, and the controversy, your article in Forbes, you know, the title of it, Support Ukraine, but don't implement a no-fly zone. So what would that support look like? Well, I think there's a danger even in the level that has been reached now, uh, you know, defensive weapons have been supplied, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, which were, you know, for Ukraine to fight back against the Russians. But now they're talking about fighter planes. Um, they're talking about more elaborate and more systems, which I think could aggravate the problem. Then you've also got the sanctions, which I think only makes sense if they're going to be lifted in conjunction with negotiations, not if they're going to be used to, to punish Russia indefinitely uh, you know, we, we've had sanctions against Cuba for 60 years. Uh, we've had sanctions against Iran for, uh, you know, well over a decade. And they haven't accomplished, uh, you know, what, what they said they would, you know, changes in those regimes, but they have caused a lot of suffering for the people of those countries. So I think if there's going to be sanctions, they should only be linked to kind of a short term of trying to pressure Russia to end the war. Uh, they're an imperfect instrument, but I think there's there's limited number of options at this point. Uh, and I think there's got to be more openness to compromise in, in negotiations. As, as painful as that can be, um, I think it's preferable to this war, which some administration officials have suggested could go on as long as 10 to 15 years if there's not a negotiated settlement. Right. And, you know, just finally, this, you know, a lot of uh, people, certainly in the anti-war uh, movement, have been saying that this war could have been, should have been avoided. And, you know, we're not hearing a lot about what uh, President Zelensky allegedly said in a public response on March 7th about joining NATO is not an option for the Ukraine. I mean, that's been a big deal uh, for Russia, part of their, uh, you know, they've broken international law by invading the Ukraine, not the first time a country has broken international law to invade, but that's certainly no excuse for it. But yeah, your your thoughts on, on this NATO controversy and uh, the reality that um, NATO has been getting closer and closer to Russia's borders. And uh, your final thoughts on this. Well, there was an understanding at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the unification of Germany uh, that NATO would not roll up to Russia's borders. And that understanding was violated, and it caused great consternation in Russia well before uh, Putin rose to power. And then the notion that Ukraine might join which has a particular kind of security uh, concern uh, for Russia, I think exacerbated the problem. It doesn't excuse what Putin has done, but I think in the potential for a diplomatic initiative to head off the war, 
um, you know, keep uh, foreclosing the option of Ukraine joining NATO should have been on the table. And this notion that, you know, an open door to NATO and you can't tell countries, you know, who they can affiliate with was contradicted by the fact that there was no intention of letting Ukraine join NATO anytime soon. So this kind of tattered principle stood in the way of, of, I think, what was sort of the first primary Russian demand being dealt with and then opening the door to uh, addressing other issues. So, So in that sense, I think there was an opportunity to miss there. And, of course, you never know exactly what Putin had in mind, but I think the um, there should have been more serious negotiations before uh, it got to this point. Right, yeah. Well, it, it remains to be seen. And um, William Hartig, I mean, I'm sure people in, in Europe are, are very worried, but certainly people around the world are very worried that this thing doesn't escalate um, and, you know, grow into uh, yet another world war. So uh, let's just hope that uh, some kind of negotiated uh, end to this horror um, comes sooner rather than than later, as we see the cost of war. You know, we hear about war, but when you actually see it and you see the the women and children and civilians being targeted and people forget that this is actually what war looks like, right? Um, that the Ukraine isn't unique in that way. This kind of thing has happened in just about every war. So uh, thank you for your efforts on the no-fly zone and on, on reduction of the military uh, budget. William Hartuck, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Okay. Um, we are now going to um, go to a clip to hear, you know, anti-war activists, peace activists are being roundly criticized um, by some in mainstream media, but also others as being uh, dupes of Russia and dupes of, of Putin now. Um, every anti-war activist that I have heard, campaigner, are absolutely opposed to war, including the the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine. Um, I'd like to play a clip for you from uh, Lindsay uh, German, who is an organizer for Stop the War Coalition that's based in the UK. And that was part of an an effort, a global anti-war webinar event, so to speak, where people from around the globe spoke out. Let's go to that clip right now. I'd like, first of all, to extend my solidarity to the people of Ukraine who are suffering under this invasion. I think we all have to condemn the invasion by Russia and to call on the troops to immediately withdraw. I'd also like to send my solidarity to the people in Russia who are demonstrating against this invasion in very difficult circumstances and with great courage. Many of them have been arrested and uh, it is a a brave thing to do. But I would also like to extend that solidarity to those watching this, to my fellow panelists on this, and to everybody who is campaigning against war in their own country. Because we are now facing um, quite a serious backlash against the kind of arguments that we're putting forward. And I just want in the few minutes that I've got to explain, I think, why it is that we uh, we see this anti-war movement as so important. 
it's very uh, it's key for us to understand that the events of the last few weeks and the events of the last days um, and the fighting uh, in Ukraine didn't just begin a few weeks ago. They're the product of a very long history going back decades now. And uh, we have to look at the role, uh, therefore, of our own governments and our own government's allies. And speaking as somebody who's active in the anti-war movement in Britain, uh, I feel that we need to look at the role of the British government in particular in alliance with the um, United States where we've seen since 1991 a series of wars which have become increasingly um, dangerous, have become, um, have led to a society which is more and more militarised and there are far more uh, countries with, uh, with uh, high levels of, uh, of uh, military, countries like Saudi Arabia, big increase in, in those. We've seen as well the failure of the war on terror, um, which began in 2001 after the events of 9-11, which has continued right up to now. And NATO has played a very, very central role in uh, all of those in all of those wars, particularly uh, the bombing of uh, the former Yugoslavia in 1999, the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, which has ended in serious defeat for um the Western powers only last year, and in the bombing of Libya. It's also been involved in Iraq, uh, a country where more than a million have died. When we look at conflicts today, we still have major wars going on in the Middle East, particularly in Yemen. I say all this um, because I think it's important to put all of these things in a context. NATO isn't a defensive alliance. It's been expanding eastwards for... Um, since the end of the Cold War, despite promises that it would not. Um, it's been expanding not just in Europe, but in other parts of the world, most recently in the Indo-Pacific. And I think we have to reject our government's arguments that these are um, these are defensive moves. They're not defensive moves. They're moves to actually incorporate more and more countries under the, um, under the banner of, of NATO. And this has been... A contribution to the conflict that we that we now see in Ukraine. I think it's very clear for all of us that we're anti-war and peace campaigners and we reject war in any of its forms. We do not want uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian people have the right to decide their own future and that's very, very important for them. All righty. And that was uh, Lindsay German, who is an organizer for Stop the War Coalition. It's based in the UK, but a lot of support, really part of a global uh, network of anti-war campaigners. We're going to take a short station break now, and then we return. Dr. Gerald Horn joins us to give us his thoughts, his analysis on the situation of the Ukraine, and walk us through a bit of the history that led to this moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Tell me, oh, 
All righty. And that is Edwin Starr with the song War. What is it good for? That's been very much my mantra and of many others, uh, given the situation now in the world. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org, where you'll find other news stories, a community calendar, videos, and much more. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And within the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Iowa, across Iowa, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Ireland. Uh, We are covering, spending the hour digging deep into what is happening with this uh, war in Ukraine, what is behind it uh, earlier. We discussed in depth the no-fly zone, what it is, and the dangers uh, of it. And uh, we would now like you to hear some of the opposition coming from those in government in the European Union. Uh, I'd like to play a clip of Claire Daly, who is a member of parliament in Ireland. And here she is contrasting um, the impact as well as the reaction to what has hap- what is happening in the Ukraine with what has happened in Afghanistan. Let's go to that clip now. There's no doubt about it. We're living in times of catastrophic crisis where the lives of innocent civilians are sacrificed in the wars of their masters. Yes, in Ukraine, but not only. Since the last plenary, tens of thousands of Afghani citizens have been forced to flee in search of food and safety. Five million children face famine, an agonizing and painful death, a 500% increase in child marriages and children being sold just so they can survive, and not a mention of it, not here, not anywhere. No wall-to-wall TV coverage, no emergency humanitarian response, no special plenaries, not even a mention in this plenary, no Afghani delegations and no statements. My God, they must be wondering What makes their humanitarian crisis so unimportant? Is it the colour of their skin? Is it that they're not white? They're not European? That their problems come from a US gun or a US invasion? Is it that the decision to rob their country's wealth was taken by a despotic US president rather than a Russian one? Because, my God, all wars are evil and all victims deserve support. And until we get on that page, we have no credibility whatsoever. Wow. And that was Member of Parliament Claire Daly. Clearly a special session in Parliament there in Ireland on uh, the war in Ukraine. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than uh, 30 books. Um, Dr. Horn, uh, so glad to be able to have you. It's it's been a while given our fun to drive here, Uh, but welcome. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Dr. Horn, in the clip, I'm not quite sure you um, heard it uh, from uh, Lindsay German, who's an anti-war campaigner in the UK. She spoke about how you know this. Uh, you, you know there was there's a whole history, a whole lead up to this particular moment, and talked about the role of the U.S. and and the U.K. Um, going going back. Give us. Uh, you know, a, a little bit of history that led to this moment we're facing right now in the Ukraine, Dr. Horn. Well, in the short term, you can mark it from February 2014 with the so-called Maidan revolt in Kiev when a pro-Moscow regime is ousted by virtue of a so-called color revolution and Victoria Nuland, who, as you know, has been in the State Department for a number of years, recently captured headlines with her admission that there was so-called biological research laboratories uh, in Ukraine, supposedly not involved in warfare, she says, although the United Nations Security Council discussed that. But in any case, she had her fingerprints all over uh, this uh, so-called Maidan revolt. Now, for those who doubt that this might have been a turning point in terms of Ukraine's relations to Russia, which went south, after February 2014, leading to February 2022, I'm afraid, pay a close attention to an article in the Washington Post a few days ago, which also mentioned that relations between Ukraine and China went south after February 2014. Indeed, the suggestion in the Washington Post article is that this had everything to do with U.S. pressure. Apparently, a Chinese entity was on the verge of purchasing the major aviation component manufacturer in Ukraine, that was blocked. In fact, it's now before the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, a multi-million dollar case. And this leads to the supposition that what's involved with this present crisis is not only a confrontation between the United States-led North Atlantic Treaty Organization and Russia, Ultimately, it's a confrontation between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Although it's difficult to confront China directly right now, because if you confront China directly right now, it means you're confronting Apple, you're confronting Tesla, you're confronting GM, Microsoft, KFC, Starbucks, and all the rest. But pay attention to the fact that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor under Mr. Biden, met for seven hours yesterday in Rome with leaders of the political bureau of the Chinese Communist Party in charge of foreign policy, it's apparent that what is at play is that the United States wants China to observe sanctions against Russia. If China does not observe sanctions against Russia, then China, too, may face some sort of retaliation from Washington, and if China does observe the sanctions, it will basically be uh, weakening its major partner, speaking of Moscow, uh, which then puts China closer in the crosshairs. So in some ways, this presents a dilemma for China. But at the same time, uh, I think it's not unfair to suggest that when the dust clears and the situation settles, China might wind up being the major beneficiary of this U.S. 
confrontation with Russia. Because keep in mind, ever since the Obama administration, Washington has been talking about a pivot to Asia. And I think future historians might wonder why the United States is now bogged down in Eastern Europe rather than confronting China directly. And so what you see as a result of this conflict with Russia, you have further steps towards tightening this Russia-China de facto alliance that it may also come to include Iran. Recall that the former National Security Advisor under Jimmy Carter, the big nephew Brzezinski, in his book, The Grand Chessboard, said that a major threat to U.S. domination globally would be a de facto setup between Iran, China, and Russia, and that seems to be in motion. At the same time, despite all of the propaganda coming out of Washington about the world is united uh, concerning uh, sanctions against Russia and isolating Russia, that's not altogether accurate. It is accurate to say that there is a remarkable pan-European unity uh, targeting Russia. Switzerland has even dropped its traditional stance of neutrality in order to target Russia. Monaco, uh, which has been a kind of haven for Russian millionaires and billionaires, has also dropped its uh, traditional uh, favoritism towards uh, these uh, affluent men. But if you look at the global south, the picture becomes a bit more murky. Indeed, in the New York Times just a few days ago, Thomas Meany wrote that of the 10 most populous nations on planet Earth, only one has endorsed in a full-throated manner sanctions against Russia, and that happens to be the United States of America. I've already made reference to China, which most likely will not observe U.S. sanctions because they have not received the imprimatur of the United Nations, nor the Security Council, where, of course, Russia and China will veto. But as is well known, uh, India has had a decades-long close relationship uh, to Moscow. India, in fact, right now is contemplating buying on the cheap uh, Russian energy that can now not be sold, at least theoretically, in the United States of America. Pakistan, which is uh, India's long-term foe, also has decided to maintain relations of a sort with Moscow. In fact, Prime Minister Imran Khan got in a heated dispute with ambassadors and envoys from the United States and the European Union uh, in this country because they reprimanded and rebuked him for taking that stance, uh, but instead uh, he rebuked and reprimanded them. At the same time, if you look at the vote at the General Assembly with regard to castigating Russia for this intervention in Ukraine, it's interesting to note that there were about three dozen abstentions. Now, the abstentions included China and India, of course, but they also included a number of African nations, uh, including uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Namibia, Senegal, Algeria, etc. And I think that for many African nations, and I would imagine many people in the United States as well, they see a kind of double standard. Uh, that is to say, the United States can uh, go beyond a United Nations uh, mandate with regard to Libya and engage in regime change and no sanctions against the United States. The United States 
can overthrow Saddam Hussein without a UN mandate, no sanctions against the United States. But instead, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, we're all supposed to join the newest BDF movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, against Russia, which of course reminds us that there's no BDS movement that has attained the same amount of traction against Israel concerning its depredations in historic Palestine compared to what's unfolded within days concerning Russia. And so I think that at the end of the day, as a front-page article in the New York Times this morning suggests, that when the dust clears, we will be faced with a new international order and it's unclear if that new international order will resemble the old order dominated by Washington. Very interesting analysis there, Dr. Horn. And picking up on your point about China and in some ways China uh, being a target. Now, a number of people, including, you know, the likes of somebody like Henry Kissinger, of all people, but uh, a number of people had said this war could have been avoided. And it it begs the question of why wasn't it? Now, there are some that will say no matter whether Ukraine had met the demands um, of, of Russia, of Vladimir Putin, um, key among those is that uh, Ukraine not become a member of NATO. And on, uh, you know, Zelensky, he's now making some comments about, well, likely Ukraine shouldn't become a member of NATO. But, you know, that was a very big deal. Uh, for Russia. And one has to wonder if a part of this is to show the vulnerability of Russia militarily, to show some weakness and vulnerability of Russia as a way of sending a message also to China, given the the deal that uh, China and Russia signed, you know, at the recent um, Winter Olympics, uh, you know, where uh, the Russian president attended and met with Chinese President Xi. So, you know, I'm wondering just your thoughts on that, because and that's not to excuse at all any nation, including Russia, the United States or any other nation breaking international law by going in and invading another country. Um, but I'd just like to you to say a little bit more about uh, China being a target. What do you think of that? Well, as I said in my opening remarks, I think that China is the ultimate target, which is one of the reasons why it's going to be very difficult for China to go along with the pan-European community in endorsing sanctions against Russia, because if they do, they're only weakening their firewall. That is, if there's regime change in Moscow, which is the fervent hope of many in the North Atlantic community, it's clear that China will be the next target. But keep in mind that what I said about the newest BDS movement, boycott and divestment and sanctions movement against Russia, uh, taking off like a rocket within the last uh, few days, it's apparent that there are some gaping loopholes in this uh, regime that the press really needs to focus on. What I mean is, despite the fact that Exxon and BP and other oil giants have decided to pull out of Russia, Total of France, their energy giant, is remaining in Siberia, at least as of a day or two ago, which may help to account 
for President Macron's uh, frantic calls uh, to Mr. Putin in recent days and weeks. And then, with regard to banking sanctions, it's interesting to note that the third largest bank in Moscow is the Gazprom Bank. That name may be familiar because Gazprom is the natural gas monopoly, or behemoth, I should say, uh, that ships or has been shipping oil, excuse me, natural gas, uh, to Germany and other sites in, in Western Europe. But it also has a bank to finance uh, these transfers. And this third largest bank in Russia also is not under sanctions. Do not be surprised that sooner rather than later, it will be the number one bank in Moscow. And then, like love and marriage, sanctions and sanctions busting go hand in hand. I think that sanctions busting is already in motion with regard to Russia. I dare say that a number one sanctions buster might wind up being Italy, which over the years also has maintained very close relations to Moscow as well. And Italy, of course, is one of the leaders of the uh, European Union. And speaking of the European Union, I think that it's unclear to me whether or not the EU will go along with the new Cold War against China, even though supposedly they've signed on to this new Cold War against Russia. However, if you look closely at the meeting that took place in Versailles, France, over this past weekend of EU leaders, you get the distinct impression that the European Union may be moving closer to President Macron and his point of view that the European Union needs to develop so-called strategic autonomy. Recall that President Macron not so long ago referred to the U.S.-led NATO as brain dead. And I think that it's apparent that as long as Washington is in the driver's seat of NATO, then it's in the interest of Washington to start these brush fires uh, in Eastern Europe, which then drags in the European Union, because recall that John Bolton, the sacked national security advisor under Mr. Trump in his memoir, said that Mr. Trump and those he represents saw the European Union as number two to China as a threat to U.S. domination. And so it makes a kind of imperial sense for the EU to try to develop a kind of strategic autonomy because aligning with uh, Washington obviously just leads to crisis. It leads to refugee flows. And I should also say that with regard to your earlier point, uh, this issue of whether or not uh, Ukraine uh, joining NATO uh, should have been uh, taken off the table, What's interesting is that even though NATO, Mr. Biden, and even Mr. Zelensky, before February 24, 2022, would not take that off the table, just a few days ago, in an interview on ABC News, Mr. Zelensky took it off the table. And so yeah. that also leads me to suspect that there is significant room for negotiation of this conflict, but even if this conflict is negotiated into peace, I dare say that the day after we will be faced with a new international situation. Right. And that's, yeah. And all of this also being a, a warning, um, as you mentioned, the global south, you mentioned uh, India, etc. 
you know, to kind of stay with the U.S. and Europe um, because and also to China, because look at the weakness of of Russia. But you mentioned also, Dr. Horn, uh, Palestine and Elon uh, Pape has an has an article about four lessons from the Ukraine. He talked about navigating our humanity in which he talked about the photo that went viral about a high rise in Ukraine being hit by Russian bombing. And that turned out to be a high rise uh, from the from the Gaza Strip. And he he says that, that in all of this, we really do have to talk about what has happened in Palestine and to the uh, Palestinians because how many high rises in in Gaza have been have been destroyed, have been bombed, the number of people being killed. He also says that another lesson uh, from all of this, from his perspective, white refugees are, are welcome, others less so, right? And also that sometimes neo-Nazism can be tolerated. You know, and he, he just goes on with that list. And hitting high rises is only a war crime in Europe, but not a, a war crime when it happens in other places. But Dr. Horn, at the beginning of the show, we played a clip of a, a young uh, woman, African woman, uh, talking about the racism that um, she and her fellow Africans have faced trying to get out of the Ukraine. And then the New York Times has an article where they contrast two refugees, both on Poland's border, but worlds apart. One, a white uh, family from the Ukraine with a welcome mat uh, you know, for them, and a, a young African, uh, Albiger, who has been punched in the face, called racial slurs, and forced to uh, sleep on frozen ground in Poland. No welcome mat for him. So, Dr. Horn, we just have a, a couple of minutes. Just your final thoughts on all this. Well, inferentially, I think that this crisis that borders on catastrophe, what it reveals is the importance of Pacifica. Because if you look at the traditional U.S. press organs, the aforementioned New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, NPR, they've all become, to a greater or lesser degree, cheerleaders uh, for this latest conflict. If you paid attention to the Sunday morning talk show just a few days ago, what was striking was how all of the uh, anchors and journalists, so-called, were pressing administration spokesmen and spokespersons from the right to inaugurate a so-called no-fly zone and damn the consequences with regard to whether or not that will lead to dogfights in the air between Russian and NATO jets over Ukraine, uh, leading possibly to triggering World War III. And then with regard to the point that you mentioned, I'm sure you've seen the clip uh, that was put together of commentators from CBS, uh, NBC, even Al Jazeera expressing sympathy uh, for the Ukrainian refugees. And, of course, they've been welcomed by open, with open arms, given housing. Airbnb has given tens of thousands of residences to them uh, throughout Europe. They've received wealth, social welfare benefits. And, of course, these commentators on the aforementioned outlets that I've mentioned have been quiet as a church mouse with yeah. regard to how uh, African refugees have been treated, how West Asian refugees have been treated. And so once again, what this crisis reveals is the continuing importance of Sifika. 